Welcome back to the program. Few things are more ubiquitous than money, yet what seems so simple can often become so complex. For money is far more than just the notes and coins we carry in our pockets. It's part of a complex system of debits and credits and clearing. Just look at the workings of Bitcoin, and you start to see how these notes and coins are really just tokens and symbols that represent a much larger world of money. That's the world we're going to talk about today with my guest, Felix Martin. Felix Martin is a macroeconomist and bond investor. He was educated in the UK, Italy, and the US, where he was a Fulbright scholar and has degrees in classics and international relations and economics. He worked at the World Bank and is an associate of the Institute for New Economic Thinking in New York. His writing has appeared in numerous publications, and it is my pleasure to welcome Felix Martin to the program to talk about Money, the Unauthorized Biography. Felix, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you very much for having me on, Jeff. Great to have you here. We start off with this idea that we often think of money as simply the, the physical manifestation of money, the coins, the notes we carry with us. But in fact, it's much more complex than that. That's right. I mean, um, the you know, I, I set out in this book to sort of describe the two main ways of thinking about money um, in the history of, of economic thought. And um, and they're, they're focused on these these two different ways of looking at things. And I think perhaps the easiest way to describe it is to is to talk about the you know the the way people understand where money comes from historically. Because I think the story that a lot of people grow up with. I, I noticed it in fact just the other day. I was I had one of these books called you know where where things come from for my own daughters. And this story about money was in that book, for example. And it's a story which says, you know, in the beginning there wasn't any money, it was just barter, so people swapped things, and uh, then, you know, some bright spark thought, well, this is a very inefficient system, why don't we choose one thing uh, to be a medium of exchange, you know, something that people don't want for its own sake, they just want it so it can be used to pay for other things. And, and that, in the conventional story, is the invention of money. Um, and usually, you know, of course, in principle, it could be anything that was chosen, but, you know, usually it was gold and silver because they have particular properties which are quite desirable in a medium of exchange. They they can be chopped up into small pieces and carried around, and they have some intrinsic value of their own to be used as jewelry and so on. And, and that story actually even goes further. People say, you know, later on, people thought, well, you can borrow and lend this medium of exchange, and that was the invention of credit. And even later than that, institutions grew up which specialized in this borrowing and lending of, of this money stuff, and that was the invention of banking. So that's the kind of conventional history of money. And uh, it so happens, you know, the historians that have actually looked into all this, or the anthropologists that have gone to you know, so-called primitive countries today and looked at how they work, um, they've all agreed that this story is simply not true. It's a very plausible story. I mean, it, it's quite sort of logical. It has its own logic, but it's not actually you know, the case that this is where money came from. The alternative is, in fact, almost exactly the other way around. That is to say, you know, the original primitive things about money uh, is the notion of credit, is the idea of monetary value, an abstract idea um, uh, a notion of value with a standard unit, you know, like a dollar, a pound, whatever it might be. 
Um, and that's the sort of fundamental thing. And it's the invention of those kinds of ideas, which was the revolutionary moment in the history of our economies. And the things that are used to represent that system of credit and clearing, that are used to represent those ideas, in other words, and of course there have been lots of things used, you know, principally coinage, that's what most people think of, but, you know, throughout the history of money, of course, there have been lots of other things that have been used to represent um, those underlying credit balances, pieces of wood and, um, you know, hides, and, and today, of course, in our you know, digital world, we don't actually need anything physical to represent them. But those things are not essential. They change throughout time. What's essential is the underlying system of credit and clearing. It's a set of ideas that's essential. One of the places that you saw this history really play out, or historians have seen it play out, is in this story you tell about the Pacific Island of Yap. Tell us about that. Yes, I mean, it's a, it's a picturesque story, and there are many picturesque stories in monetary history, and, and therefore I hope many picturesque stories in my book. Um, I've, I've certainly looted all of monetary history for the, the, the funnest ones I could find, but it's a, it's, a, it's a good story because it illustrates exactly this point. Um, Yap Yap was this, um, like still is, it's a, it's a very remote island in Micronesia in the Pacific, and it was you know, practically untouched um, you know, by the West, certainly, um, until the early 20th century. And then it had a visit from a young American anthropologist, uh, William Henry Furness. And he went there, you know, and he was expecting to find this very, very primitive um, society and economy. And it's a very small island. You can walk across it in a day. Uh, there are only three things that are produced there, uh, you know, fish and coconuts and sea cucumbers. So when he went there, he thought, look, I mean, if anywhere is going to operate without money on a barter system, this is going to be it. But to his surprise, he discovered that it had quite a complicated monetary system, this tiny little island. Um, and you couldn't, you couldn't fail to notice this monetary system because the coinage that they used on the island of Yap uh, was these enormous stone disks. Some of them, they were about 12 feet across. They're really vast things. And uh, he was very puzzled by this. You know, he, he came with this conventional understanding of what money is and where it comes from, and he, he couldn't quite square this with, with that story because he thought, you know, why would you choose enormous limestone disks which you can hardly carry to be your medium of exchange? And in fact, he even thought, he even thought maybe they'd chosen them uh, because they were difficult to move around. He, he actually said in his, in his book, um, when it takes four strong men to steal the price of a pig, and burglary cannot but be a disheartening occupation. But then he, then he noticed, actually, when he watched what the locals were doing and the way that they traded with each other, he noticed something funny about it, which was that, actually, they didn't move these coins around very much. What they did was, in the course of trade with one another, they would accumulate credit and debit balances with one another, and they would just offset these. And, of course, the place was small enough that they could keep a record of most of the stuff, even just in their heads. And sometimes, you know, at the end of the month or whatever, if there was an outstanding balance, they might actually transfer one of these stone coins around. But generally, they didn't. And in fact, he even heard this story. It's a famous story on the island. One of the largest and most valuable of these coins um, had been lost in transport from a different island to Yap. And, you know, for the last several generations, it had been lying on the bottom of the sea. But, but the value of this coin still accrued to the family that owned it, and they were able to 
use it to spend on things in the course of exchange. So the point of the story is just that um, uh, you know it might have it might have remained a kind of little footnote in monetary history, but as it happened, it it um, it came to the attention Furness's book of the editors of the Economic Journal in 1910, and they sent it to um, a certain young Cambridge don who was at that time uh, being seconded uh, to the Treasury, none other than John Maynard Keynes. And Keynes, you know, he read this account and he wrote a review of it saying this is really a very important story because these people, these you know, apparently very primitive Pacific Islanders, actually had a much clearer and more sophisticated understanding of money than we tend to do because they're not distracted by you know, the, the thing which stands for money. It's almost impossible for them to be distracted by it because it's, it would be ridiculous to think that that thing itself was the money in their case. And instead, they see very clearly that what's important about money and therefore where you need to ask all the questions about money uh, is this underlying system of credits and debts and the clearing of them against one another. In a contemporary sense, really, we've seen this play out as you talk about with what happened with the Irish banks back in the 70s and even in Argentina in 2002. Yes, that, that's right. I, mean, they, I think those cases sort of illustrate a second very important thing about money. I mean, one, one, I think one of the first things to understand is just to sort of get rid of the idea that money is a thing and uh, concentrate entirely on this system of credit and clearing. Now, then a question of this question becomes... You know, if money is a certain kind of credit, it's a sort of transferable credit, um, you know, it's credit against against whom, or if you look at it from the other side, who is it that issues the liability? And of course, usually, I mean, the vast majority of money that we use today um, is consists of the liabilities of central banks. So the dollar bill, uh, which is in your pocket, is a liability of the Federal Reserve. It appears on the Federal Reserve's balance sheet, and same thing for you know, pound notes here in the United Kingdom. And if it's not a liability of the central bank, then it'll be the liability usually of a commercial bank. Um, and the commercial banks you know, have recourse to the central bank. They're part of the sovereign monetary system. So either directly or indirectly, most of the official money that we use today um, are liabilities of the sovereign, we would say, meaning you know the state, the government, via the central bank. But it's also very important to see that that is most certainly not always the case, and it's not an essential feature of money. History is full of examples of private monies, that is to say, uh, private liabilities or credit against private agents or institutions, non-government institutions, which also have circulated as money. Um, and you gave a couple of examples there that that are that are from the book. Um, this this extraordinary example um, in Ireland in 1970, when as a result of the bank strike, uh, practically all the main clearing banks, all the main banks in the Republic of Ireland, shut down overnight. Sounds like an astonishing thing to happen when you hear it today. Um, you know, it's sort of it's as if you had 2008 crisis there, but you know nobody stopped it. So the entire financial sector just sort of packed up. And that situation went on for six months in the Republic of Ireland. And, you know, the Republic of Ireland is a small country, and, of course, it was less developed in those days than it is now, but it was still, you know, it was a proper developed economy in those days. So most people, when they hear this story, they think, well, 
the whole economy must have ground to a halt. And surely it can't have continued without any access to, to banks. I mean, how did people pay for things? All they would have had was cash. But we all know that most of the transactions we do don't take place using cash. They take place using checks and, and debit cards and so on. But the extraordinary thing was the economy didn't collapse. Uh, in fact, what happened was uh, the, the market sort of improvised its own money. What, what happened was people used personal checks, personal IOUs, and companies would write IOUs to one another. And these IOUs, which couldn't be cleared at banks, so they were just private IOUs, they circulated as money and they sustained the whole Irish economy for, for six months. It's quite an extraordinary story, and it shows you how, on what kind of scale, actually, private money can operate. And then, you know, there are just endless examples throughout history, and even when one starts to think about it, there are many examples on a much smaller scale today, even all the way down to the humble babysitting circle where people agree that the group will issue a certain number of credits, and those credits effectively circulate as a kind of private money. Very small scale, no threat to the official monetary system, never going to circulate more widely than a small group of people, but a very small private money nonetheless. And how does something like Bitcoin, which we've all heard a lot about today, fit into this equation? Because in many ways it represents the pantheon of taking this idea to its extreme with technology. Yes, yes. And I think I think the technology is, of course, the the key element, and it's the, by far the most interesting element in, in, in Bitcoin. I mean, personally, I, I tend to look at it as having two aspects. And one aspect is, is the aspect of Bitcoin as a private money, like the ones I was just describing. And this is when we're talking about Bitcoins themselves, as it were, the unit of account for Bitcoin. Um, and Bitcoin as a private money, I don't think is, is it, you know, in itself particularly innovative. And I suspect that it will uh, confront the same kinds of problems and opportunities as private monies have always done throughout history. Um, it has some interesting features to it. Uh, for example, it has an interesting standard, that is to say an interesting set of rules uh, describing how much of this private money can be issued. It has a absolute limit that's been set on the, it's hard-coded on the issuance of bitcoins, and over time, the number of bitcoins in circulation will asymptotically approach that maximum number. Um, so that's, that, that's kind of quite unusual. That's not always the case that, that private monies have that kind of absolute limit. And that's obviously one of the attractions um, to a lot of people about bitcoin, because they don't see the same kind of limits imposed upon the issuance of official Money. But I think that it's private money, it will suffer, as I say, from, from some of the same kinds of constraints that private monies always do, and that is basically that they can circulate amongst people who share a commitment to them, um, or people who, who are you know, willing to accept the creditworthiness of the issuer, and people that want to have, in this case, that very hard money standard, an unalterable limit on the number of bitcoins that can be issued. And the thing is that if one looks through history, one of the key lessons one sees is that um, the popularity of hard standards with limited issuance comes and goes. And it comes and goes because hard standards benefit one part of society. They benefit essentially the creditor part of society. 
whereas soft money standards, inflationary standards, they tend to benefit debtors in the economy. And who is a creditor and who is a debtor tends to change over time. And therefore, the popularity of these uh, kinds of standards tends to change over time. But, but that's the that's the, um, the aspect of Bitcoin as a private money. I mean, I think it's perfectly viable, like a lot of private monies. And of course, because it's essentially available globally, even a small constituency uh, on a global scale can, in absolute terms, be a lot of people. And I think that's what we're seeing. A lot of people are interested in it as a speculative asset or um, for that reason. But there's a separate aspect to Bitcoin, quite separate, I think, um, which is the payments technology. And this is a very innovative um, thing in Bitcoin's case. Um, and it's, it's not in principle something that could only be used with Bitcoins. In principle, it's something that one could use as an alternative payments mechanism for dollars or sterling or euros. Um, and this is the so-called distributed public ledger technology. So uh, Bitcoin essentially has um, a single ledger in which all credit and debit balances in Bitcoins are recorded. Uh, this is the blockchain, as it's called. In fact, it is, it's, a, it's a list of all the transactions that have ever taken place using Bitcoins. Uh, it's a single ledger. It's not kept in one place, though. It's distributed across the computers of all the users of, of Bitcoins. And for that reason, it's meant to be uh, much more secure than a single ledger in a single place. Um, and I think if that technology, I'm not qualified, I'm not technologically qualified to say you know, whether the claims that are made for mm -hmm. the efficiency and the economy and so on of that system um, have merit, but I mean, if it's if it's true that that system, uh, that payment system, is as efficient and as economical and as secure as its advocates claim, then I think there's every reason to think it could be quite a revolutionary innovation. Not, I think, when it's used necessarily to transfer and accord transactions with bitcoins, which, as I said, I think will always have a rather smaller constituency. But if you were to plug that kind of payments technology into the dollar system or the sterling system or the euro system, you know, that could be a big innovation because our current payments technologies um, are quite inefficient by comparison. To what extent is this view of money and understanding it as a kind of, as you describe it, a social technology, to what extent was that in some way responsible for some of the financial crises and financial problems that we have faced over the past five or six years? Well, my view is it's the other way around. My, my, my view is that actually um, the conventional view of money, thinking of money, uh, often quite accidentally as a thing, as a medium of exchange, is actually at the root of some of the problems that led to the financial crisis that we had. Um, what I mean by that is that uh, immediately after the crisis, when people were looking for reasons, you know, how this could have happened, um, a very good example, in fact, would be our own Queen, Queen Elizabeth here in the UK, they turned around and asked the people that they thought should have known. You know, and so Queen Elizabeth, for example, famously in 2008, at the end of 2008, um, after the crisis had broken, she happened to be here at the London School of Economics, the premier um, sort of economic teaching institution in the UK and probably in Europe. Um, and assembled in front of her were, you know, the mass ranks of all these internationally eminent 
economists, and she stunned them all by asking them this very simple question. She said, you know, why didn't you see this crisis coming? And it became, you know, a celebrated comment question because uh, it was, you know, very simply asking what a lot of people wanted to know. I mean, all these economists who'd set themselves up for decades and decades as being the the, the wise men and women of of the economy and telling us how all this stuff works, and yet no one seemed to be able, despite all this very elaborate sort of technical um, uh, modeling and theoretical work they were doing, no one seemed to be able to have predicted this massive crisis, which had been sort of lingering at the heart of our system. And, you know, the initial answers, I think, that I detected to that question were, you know, that basically economics was a corrupt discipline. You know, a lot of economists, you know, they worked for banks or, you know, they were consultants and so on. And, and then, therefore, for some reason, they were sort of deliberately ignoring what they knew to be wrong with, um, the, the, the current system of money and finance and monetary policy and so on. And uh, you know, a good example of this would be uh, Charles Ferguson's uh, well-known Oscar-winning documentary, um, Inside Job, um, you know, which was all about you know, the economics profession and how it sort of connived with Wall Street and uh, the city and all of this. And I mean, I suppose I didn't, I've never looked into that in great detail. I mean, I watched the documentary. It's is quite appalling and quite convincing in some respects, and I'm sure there's some truth to that. But I personally don't believe that economics is more corrupt, really, than many other academic disciplines. And actually, I think the answer is deeper than that. I mean, I think that, and I try to explain this in the second part of my book, that um, there's a problem on the level of ideas. Um, And the problem is that the way that economics developed, particularly after the Second World War, is very heavily reliant upon this conventional view of money. And the problem with relying on this conventional view of money as a thing is that it ignores almost all the important questions about money and monetary policy and finance. It leads you to ignore um, some of these crucial questions. For example, ones that we were just discussing in the case of Bitcoin, questions like what is the monetary standard? What are the rules? the creation of money, and who gets to decide on those rules. Um, Those questions don't really make sense if you think of money as a medium of exchange, if you think of it as uh, on the model of gold in the days when we had um, a gold standard. Um, Nobody decides how much gold is worth, so that doesn't make sense. So I think that this this problem on the level of ideas, uh, you know, caused a big blind spot, basically, in the economics profession. And, and the economics profession and economics generally happens to be a very, very important way of thinking and understanding our society and economy. And it's absolutely at the heart of many very powerful and important institutions, from central banks and ministries of finance, obviously, but all, all the way down to the way that um, you know, the, the man and woman in the street understand how the economy works and therefore you know, what were the reasons for the crisis we had. As you talk about it, some of the problems, some of the misunderstanding goes back even to the ideas of John Locke. Yes, that's right. I've been, I've been, uh, I'm afraid I've been blamed for giving John Locke a terribly bad <laughs> racket book, which is most unfair because he is, of course, uh, he was uh, a genius for the centuries. There's no question about it. And he's the, you know, the father of, of really the father of the political philosophy that underlies certainly, you know, our sort of form of government here in the UK and, and yours in, in the US. Their classical liberal political philosophy, um, but 
it, it is, you know, it's a story well known amongst monetary historians, but perhaps not more widely known, but he was also a very active participant in these debates about monetary reform um, after the Civil War uh, in, um, in Britain, just at the time when Britain was making this very difficult transition from having been an absolute monarchy to being um, a constitutional monarchy. And it went through the period, of course, of the Civil War and then becoming a republic before it got to that compromise situation. Um, and that compromise situation, you know, we love to think here in the UK, especially, you know, I probably don't agree in the US, and I hardly need to say, but, you know, we like to think it's a nice compromise. <laughs> of course, it's very different today how it was back then, but the compromise was, you know, not either to have absolute monarchy nor to have, you know, complete republican government without, you know, throwing over the whole old order all at once, as they did a century later in France with disastrous consequences, but to have a sort of middle road you know, in which we had a king and queen, but they were subject to parliament. So this was the sort of context of what was going on. And um, as, a, as, a, as part of this, so there's a big monetary reform going on. And um, the, the, the key part of the monetary reform was the foundation of the Bank of England. And the Bank of England represented in the financial world an equivalent compromise to this political compromise that I was just talking about. So uh, rather than just the king deciding on the monetary standard or just the bankers deciding and the merchants deciding on the monetary standard, they were the ones who are sort of allied mostly with parliament, rather than either of these extremes, they struck a kind of middle way. And this was represented by the Bank of England. It was a quid pro quo. The merchants got to use their money, but they got the endorsement from the king. And in return, they gave something to the king, which was arranging his finances from him. And it's the origin of, of all the sort of monetary systems that we have today, a kind of hybrid public-private um, central bank. The Federal Reserve is an equally, an equally good example. It's different, of course, in the Bank of England, but it's, it is also a hybrid public-private institution. And when this was happening, John Locke, was very, very concerned to protect this very delicate, as he saw it, sort of child constitutional monarchy. He was very worried that these merchants and bankers would take over this new institution, um, the Bank of England, and they would suborn it, and they would just change it and, and into something that just served only their aims and didn't serve the public interest and therefore shore up um, for eternity, he hoped constitutional government. And he was so worried about it that he said, look, we can't possibly allow um, this institution to decide on this key question, what is the monetary standard? Because it might just get captured by a group of merchants and bankers, private interests, and then they would just, you know, this very powerful thing, money, would only be serving the interests of one part of the country, and our experiment in constitutional government would fail. And because of that, he said, look, um, what we should do instead is we should peg the value of the pound sterling to a particular weight of silver, actually, the silver in the beginning, and then later it turned into gold for various reasons. But in, in the beginning, it was a silver standard. And in order to make this argument and in order to convince people, he actually went even further than that. He, he didn't say we're going to, you know, out of our choice, peg the value of sterling silver. 
he said, and he made a long philosophical argument about it, the value of the pound sterling is a certain weight of silver. You can't disagree with it. It's not a matter of political disagreement. It's a matter of fact. And if you disagree with it, you're mad. You know, you're, you're sort of inventing stories, and behind your invented stories, you have no, no doubt some uh, evil intention. And the, the, the origins, as I've explained, of his saying this were, were really to, to promote what he saw as very essential political interests. And he was a very persuasive and powerful and influential person, and intellectually much more powerful than the other people of the day, and so he won out. Um, and he really ingrained in in um, monetary thought for centuries after that. The idea, um, which is actually quite a strange idea, it's certainly not actually logically true, um, that, you know, for example, the pound sterling just was a certain weight of silver or gold. He somehow managed to suppress the idea, which of course is very obviously true to us today, that the pound sterling or the dollar or the euro, it's just something abstract and arbitrary. And we can, if we like, set rules determining how many pounds and euros and dollars are going to be produced and try and keep them in line with the value of gold, if we like, or a value of goods in a consumer basket, which is what we do today with our inflation targets. But if we do that, it's a choice. That's our choice to do that. And you can change that choice if it's economically efficient and if it's politically justified. And he managed to suppress all of that idea and fixing people's minds that the real truth is that the pound sterling or the dollar just is a certain weight of gold. And that turned out to be quite a, a pernicious thing over the long term. Felix Martin, his book is Money, the Unauthorized Biography. Felix, I thank you so much for spending time with us today. Not at all. Thank you very much indeed, Jeff. Thank you. We'll take a break. I'll be right back. <laughs> 